Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. As the Syrian conflict demonstrates, crowdsourced video footage and photographs are now an important part of any news reporting. But how do you verify what you're watching? In this lecture, given in spring 2013 and part of our Houston lecture series, Markham Nolan, managing editor of Storyful, the Irish news agency, explains how news gathering has changed and how the investigative skills of the journalist have to be developed to meet new challenges. Using vivid case studies from Syria, the Arab Spring, hurricanes and earthquakes, he explores the tools available to all of us on the internet that can be used to assess the veracity and news value of YouTube videos, tweets and posts on Facebook. So my name is Markham, I'm managing editor of Storyful. Uh, Storyful was set up by Mark Little, who's a former uh, foreign correspondent with RT. And during the Iranian Revolution, Mark was watching all the stuff that was going on and all the stuff that was making its way onto news networks. And what he was seeing was a lot of white-faced European reporters standing on hotel uh, roofs about 20 miles away from the action, having a guesstimate as to what was going on in the streets. And at the same time, he was looking at his, his own phone and seeing direct uploads from Iranian students and from protesters, you know, being beaten in the streets and being chased down by the Iranian police and made the connection with, why is this material not on our TV screens? Is this not, more, is this not closer to the truth than anything we're being shown on, on TV? And what you're seeing now, uh, particularly in the last year and a half since the Arab Spring, is you see a lot more amateur video, you see a lot more YouTube footage, and that's what we do in Story for that is We have helped a lot of, of the bigger news organisations like ABC in the States, the New York Times, Channel 4, um, and, and a range of others make all this social media content useful. And there was a huge amount of fear in those organisations about what, what could be verified, what could be proven to be true, what was dodgy, what was fake, what was propaganda. And that's what we do in Storyful, is we apply all these old journalism techniques through a whole load of free uh, tools on the internet, um, and we apply it to social media, and we, we basically verify it. And we find uh, the tagline for Storyful has always been news from noise. And one of our internal rules is there's always someone closer to the story. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today, is how, through a little bit of digging and through using some clever tools, you can always get closer to the source. And in doing a bit of research for this talk, I found that Ireland's been an interesting place for journalism for a long time. Um, does, the name does the name Thomas Crosby ring a bell with people here? Yes. What's Thomas Crosby? Examiner. The Examiner. Okay, so Thomas Crosby Holdings is the, is the holding company for the Examiner and on a, a whole batch of other uh, media organisations in Ireland. In 1850, Thomas Crosby was 15 years old, um, and he decided that he was going to go into journalism and join the Examiner, the, the Cork Examiner then, regional paper in the south of Ireland. Within a short space of time, as a 15-year-old, he became one of the best foreign correspondents in Europe. Right? He was scooping the London Times, he was scooping all the papers in Europe, and all he did was get a little closer to the source than anyone else did. And how Thomas Crosby did that was, he was from a boating family, he would row out into the middle of Cork Harbour when ships sailed across the Atlantic. Right? It was a three-week journey. It was before we had undersea cables or radio or any way of communicating with America. And he would literally row out when the boats came in and dropped their anchor, and he'd shout up to the railing and he'd shout up to the people who were on board. And they would shout down to him with news that was three weeks old, but it was never been heard before in Europe. 
and he would write it down and they'd throw him a copy of the New York Times and he'd scan the papers and he'd figure out what he could and what he couldn't, couldn't verify and the Cork Examiner got it first. So they beat the London Times and the rest of Europe to news of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. They beat the rest of Europe to news of the end of the American Civil War. And they did it all because Thomas Crosby had innovated a little bit in a rowing boat, literally just pushed the boat out of it. And uh, he got closer to the source than anyone else did. That's all it took. So that was the first kind of innovation, getting a little bit closer to the source. And obviously, we've taken that further and further and further. And uh, we can now talk really directly to them. And Journalism now is in an interesting position. It's obviously in, you know, it's in a jocker because there's no money. All the, all the money's been gobbled up by Google, the business model is screwed, etc. But we're in a period of upheaval for news gathering that uh, is, has come about because of a shift in the balance of power, right? So for a long time, since Thomas Crosby, in the 150 years since Thomas Crosby, the audience really didn't have any say in what the news was. So they were fed the news by journalists, they consumed it, they could comment on it via the letters page, but there was a, a really long loop into how anyone like you or me or anyone else could affect the news and say, I, I challenge what you're saying here, I challenge the facts within your reporting, or I don't want to hear about this, I actually want to hear about something else. And that didn't change, it's only changed really in the last five years. So my first experience with, um, with the media and pushing back against what was happening was in 1984. I was four years old. There was a one-day strike in the BBC, and I couldn't see my cartoons, right? So I was angry. So I did what any four-year-old would do. I wrote a letter. And this is the letter I wrote to the BBC. And my mum posted it off. I signed all my hate and I love Mark, and I put my age there, and it seems to get good response. They wrote back to me, and it took three weeks. So 1984, there was a three-week loop. You, you give your feedback, it will come back to you three weeks later, and you can't affect the news that way. But now you can. So now... If you see something online, you can respond directly to the journalists. You can tweet them, you can email them. If you don't get a response within half an hour, you begin to question what's going on. What, you know, I have something valid, but they're not responding to that. What are they trying to hide? Do they not want to change their journalism? Do they not want to change their views? So that's how far we've come. Nineteen eighty-four to now, we're instantaneous. And what that changes for journalists is we're responsive. We're not pushing anymore. We're actually in involved in a constant conversation with everyone, everyone in the world. Um, and... It, it behooves us to actually immerse ourselves in that conversation. But it also changes how we do our job because you can't afford to just push stuff out. You have to react and we're, we're working in real time and it poses huge challenges. But it also gives us access to stuff at a greater level than we've ever had before. Right? So what I'd like to show you is uh, there was a, an earthquake on September 5th in Costa Rica. It hit, it was fairly big, it was a 7.6. So it was a reasonably large earthquake. In Managua, in Nicaragua, it's a 250 kilometer distance. It took a minute for the earthquake, in real terms, the actual shaking of the earthquake, to move from Costa Rica to Managua, right? So a minute later, they were feeling it in Managua. 30 seconds after that, someone who was experiencing the earthquake tweets temblor, which means earthquake in Spanish. From the days where Thomas Crosby was getting news at a three week remove, the information about the earthquake was available to everyone, anywhere in the world, instantly. 90 seconds after the earthquake had happened, which is a quantum leap from where we were. So it took that long, it took, instant, it took 30 seconds from when someone felt it with their feet, felt the ground shaking, for that to travel the distance across the Atlantic that news used to take three weeks to travel. And what that should mean is that we can know about any event that happens in the world absolutely instantaneously, because what that person did is what we all do now, we document our lives in real time. If you think about what happens if you see something you like to share or you're coming to the conference today, I know a couple of you mentioned it on Twitter, right? 
That's a real-time documentation of what you're doing in the day. And we do it on Facebook, and we do it on YouTube, and we do it on Twitter, and we do it on every social platform, Instagram, whatever you like. And we're creating this real-time repository of everything that's happening in the world. And it means that we ha every journalist and every other person should be able to access that you know, information about any event for free in real time, which is brilliant. And it should mean that we don't have to miss a thing, except there's too much information. So if you look at the figures, the 72 hours of video are put on YouTube every minute. That's every single second there's been an hour and 10 minutes more on YouTube. By the time I'm finished speaking here, there'll be about 1,500 more hours of, of video on YouTube than there was when I started, which is huge. Could you ever catch up? Could you ever possibly catch up on the video? On Facebook, any 15-minute period, there's about 2.5 million more photos go up on Facebook. It's vast. The quantities of it are absolutely mind-boggling. And what this means for journalism is we're not going and finding information anymore. We're actually holding back information, or trying to hold back information. You're trying to hold back the crap stuff. Average punter doesn't really mind if um, what they're putting up is scraped, is copied, is um, taken from somewhere else, is fake, is just really not really relevant. So as a journalist, you're trying to find the good stuff, make sure the good stuff gets to the reader, and hold the rest back, so it's not really that useful. And that, that becomes a task. And in order to do that, we have to do what Thomas Crosby did and what journalists always do, is get as close to the source as you can. So, from a standing start as a journalist, you're trying to get into um, a situation, you're trying to understand it. How do you do that? How do you bring down the mass, the cacophonous amount of voices that there are online, and find the ones that are relevant and the ones that are going to tell you exactly what's going on? And it can be really difficult. And the, the example I often go back to, um, just to show you how difficult it can be, is Sandy. Like Hurricane Sandy in New York, you had the perfect storm hitting the iPhone capital of the universe. So there was huge amounts of content being shared. Uh, a lot of them was, oh, this photo was, was shown to be from Sandy. In fact, it was from a previous storm. It was fake. This was a composite image. And it, it's a genuine image. It's not a film or anything. This is a, it's a train that was in, I think it was uh, somewhere down south, a tornado alley, and someone had just stitched in with Photoshop behind the um, Statue of Liberty. This was being circulated during Hurricane Sandy. It was one we had to go, right, this is fake. It's not, it's not true. This is from the film Day After Tomorrow, also being circulated during Sandy, clearly fake. Um, it was one we had to back down. But there's, there's a lot of fakes, and it's, uh, it goes beyond Sandy. It goes to you know, Syria at the moment. We've seen some absolutely incredible fakes, ones that you wouldn't believe. There was one that we sat and watched for about 15 minutes. Absolutely horrible stuff. It was two guys seated against a wall, um, and another guy in an army uniform comes up with a chainsaw and takes their head off. Now, there's no doubt whatsoever that that was an actual person who had been beheaded, and I watched it several times to confirm that it was a person there, you know, and they died in front of my eyes. But it wasn't from Syria, even though there was, a, there was screaming in Arabic. You could hear the sounds of the chainsaws. It was a video from 2004 shot in Mexico that they had overdubbed brilliantly. Like, uh, it would have taken, it would have been a great ME, uh, MA project, you know, to, to, to fake this kind of stuff. It was beautiful propaganda from a functional perspective, but it was absolutely fake. And we ran that through some translating, translation searches. We took the word chainsaw, which we could identify in Arabic. We put it into multiple languages. We found it in Spanish. And eventually that led us back to the Mexican video. And multiple fakes and even plasticine animations of the fake video. It was that old and it was that notorious. This photo was real. This is Avenue C. It's in downtown Manhattan. 
and this is the flooding during Sandy, and you know, a lot of you may have seen this. This one got a grilling online because all the journalists in New York were so worried about fakes that they weren't willing to put their name or their hand up and say, I can verify this, this um, photo without doing <coughs> incredible amount of due diligence on it. And the reasons given for this being fake were the Instagram filter they used, how much light there was in the photo, etc., etc. Everyone thought it was fake. It wasn't, it's real. The guys, Jesse and Greg, were the source, and they were well-known New York bloggers, and um, you were able to stand up fairly quickly, but there was such an amount of hesitance in New York because of the amount of fakes that were circulating. It was a long time before anyone was willing to go, okay, we trust this one. Um, but that's, that's what we're doing. So you can see the two ends of the spectrum, the, the crazy cat swarm videos and, and this kind of stuff. So here it's easy to find the source. Jesse and Greg, you know, they've got their website. They're pretty easily identifiable. It's not easy, though. If you look at something like the Egyptian Revolution, now, this is a bit of an abstract representation of it. What I'm going to show you is a video of a visualisation of the Twitter conversation that happened in Tahrir Square in the centre of Cairo on the day that Hosni Mubarak decided to resign as president. Now, in Storyful, we, we monitor lists, lists and lists and lists. We make lists of people on Twitter um, by theme, by country, by region, so that when something happens, we can go to the relevant list and we can analyse it and we can see what's being shared. This represents um, the voices of, uh, they were using the tag, the hashtag Jan25, which is being used to discuss the, the revolution. Well, you see two dots, two lines between dots, or a line between two dots, I should say. That's a retweet. That means someone is taking the tweet, retweeting it. You'll see sometimes there's additional lines. And as the video goes, you'll see more lines basically joining the conversation. And where you see multiples, right, where you see the little nodes forming, that's people retweeting the same tweet time and time again. So, obviously you can't watch every conversation um, like this in real time because that's how they're presented. But you can watch them through TweetDeck, you can watch them through other tools, and you can begin to get a picture of what's being shared more. And as the, as the conversation gets even deeper, it, get, it gets quite cool actually. This is, uh, it's still in a tool called Gephi, which is a free to another free tool, G-E-P-H-I. And um, it takes a little, little while to master, but you can make these amazing visual representations. It's basically a network analysis tool. So what does this tell us, right? This, this tells us that this person here in the top right and some of the bigger ones in the outer fringes, they probably have something interesting to say. We're not sure if it's valid yet. We're not sure if it's being shared because it's wrong or if it's being shared because it's controversial. But it's certainly got people's attention. And they're the people that we should then go and investigate and go, right, let's have a look at these sources and let's figure out what they can tell us. They're probably an interesting one for us to at least uh, start to investigate. And you can do this by the you can, uh, in terms of network analysis and lists, you can do the same on, uh, on Facebook. You can build your lists and keep going back from time to time again. Facebook is one of the best sources for stuff from Syria because the, uh, there's a, a really rich, interconnected network of Facebook pages for local coordination committees, etc. And it happens in other areas as well. So, you found at least one person that you want to investigate or something that you want to investigate. And this is where the real-time web and the free tools that we have get really, really interesting. This is, uh, let this video run first. Getting real windy in just a second. Oh, shit! Right. This is a video we found that had a couple hundred views on it, um, but it's just starting to kind of be shared around. And some of the work we do, we don't always do hard news work. <coughs> We're finding the kicker stuff, the and finally type video that, that networks want to use. This is a perfect one for them. It's backyard, it's really genuine looking. 
if they can find the person behind this video, they're going to want to run with this. Okay, so uh, in the end, ABC uh, uh, ended up using this like about 15 times in one morning show, which was just so compelling. But for us, it's not really useful if you can't find that person, right? So you have to go, you have to find, uh, is this genuine, is it new, recent, uh, is it copied, does someone actually own the copyright, and that's part of what we do. But that can be hard on social media, because when a person uploads something like this, all they're doing is they're, they're sharing it with a friend, they stick it on YouTube, and they want their granny to see it, they don't really care, they're not thinking, well maybe this will get in the news, they're just putting it somewhere so other people that they never have access to it. This video was on a YouTube account with one video, it had no identification on it, nothing that we could tell, uh, nothing by which we could tell who the person was, except for the name. It was Rita Krill. And we had an American accent, so we could figure out, okay, it's, uh, it's definitely in the States. How are we going to find this person, Rita Krill? So we used a tool called Spokio. And Spokio is, uh, you have to pay for it, but it's, it's a, basically a person finder tool. And we looked for Rita Krill. And there was five or six different Rita Krills. Team set about trying to pick out, you know, different ones. Which one made sense? There was one in New York, and uh, there's one in Philadelphia. There's one in Nevada, and there's one in Naples, Florida. So we went to Wolfram Alpha, another tool, and we looked at the weather reports on Wolfram Alpha for the day in question when it decided it was being uploaded. And the one that matched was Naples, Florida. So we went looking for Rita Grill in Naples, Florida, and we just went to the phone book. Very simple. Found an address. So we're like, well, can we figure out? if uh, this is Rita Krill's address from the video. So we found these three houses, right, we knew the road. And we just said, well, let's tally up what we know from the video with what we can see on Google Maps. So looking at it here, you can see the shape of the pool, etc. We went back into the video and we started looking for tells. And there's always a couple, and sometimes it's a video like this, sometimes it's a bit more serious, but in this one, what, what you can see, just take everything you can see in that video, right? You've got the umbrella, you've got the rounded corners in the pool, You've got two trees outside this glass conservatory. You've got a white lilo uh, in the pool, and that's, that's about it. Right, so what can you see here? You've got a white lilo in the pool. A tree outside, you've got another tree outside. You can see the kind of glass conservatory and the ribbing on it there. You have a garden, garden furniture there, it looks like the umbrella's actually folded down. And you have the rounded edges on the pool. So this is our place. So we call, we find the phone number, we call Rita Krill, Rita is a bit baffled as to how we found her, but is delighted to know that someone likes her video and uh, she gives us clearance for us to take the clients. You can use this. The copyright is clear, you're fine. Rita ends up on the Ellen DeGeneres show two days later and the video gets about three and a half million hits. That's a pretty light version of how we use a couple of free tools to investigate this kind of stuff. It gets heavier though, and I'm not going to show you this whole video, but it's more stuff from the <laughs> So we ended up looking at some of the most horrific videos that I've ever seen. I mean, it's kind of stuff you would, you would never even imagine. You know, kids with their heads blown off and stuff that you possibly can't fake. It's, it's really atrocious. This video, and the reason I'm not showing you this is because there's about a dozen bloody bodies in the back of a pickup truck. And what they end up doing is throwing them off a bridge. And this was a really controversial video. The claims are the surrounding were that the guys doing the throwing were from the Muslim Brotherhood, that they were throwing the bodies of Syrian soldiers off the bridge. They were, you know, they were using blasphemous curses, etc. as they were doing it. So we needed to set about verifying this video for our clients. There was a lot of, a lot of questions being asked. And Hama at the time was under siege. 
So it was impossible to get in or out. But there were still some people that had internet connections and they were tweeting from inside Hamah or they were posting on Facebook. Uh, and some of them were on Skype and we could go back and forth with them and ask them questions. So we started asking them about this video and what they knew. And what they told us was, well, there was three of them. There was three different sources. And this is where the kind of asking, asking about sources credibility comes in. One source said, that bridge doesn't exist. There's no bridge, no such bridge. One source said, that bridge isn't in Hamah. It does exist, but it's not in the city you're looking for. And the third source says, yes, I recognize the bridge. It is in Hamah, but the water flowing under the bridge, which I'll show you in a second, shouldn't be there because the army blocked off the, the dam at Rastan upstream and the whole river ran dry at the period where they claimed this video was shown. So we had three very divergent opinions on the bridge and where it was, it was there at all. But the only tell we had from the conversations was this dam, the dam in Rastan. So before we went looking for that, we started looking at the video and most people will get distracted by the gore in the middle of videos like this. We tend to look around them for clues. So in this scene, all I can tell is that I can tell where the shadows are being cast. The shadows are being thrown, they'll always be thrown to the north. So I know roughly that this, this uh, bridge is running east-west. That's the first tell. And the second one is it has this quite distinctive railing. You can see it with the up down there in the little diagonal. So you can actually see one of the guys exiting the bridge there, unfortunately. Again, what this shows me is that there's a median in the road, right? So it's a two-lane highway. And if you look in the background, there's some odd black and white markings on the curve, which is distinctive. It may be common, we don't know, but it's certainly distinctive. We then look at the river. Okay, now on the left-hand side is a concrete edge. On the right-hand side, there's obviously vegetation, and you can see a cloud of blood in the river there. And what the cloud of blood tells me is that the water flows south to north, okay? Because the bridge is running east to west, and this, the, that's where the river's flowing. And then lastly, um, the river narrows as it goes up to the north, and there's a bit of a divot there. You can see it on the west side. So we find the dam in Rastan, and then we start going, literally going through it. We go through, this is on Google Maps, and myself and Matthew Brown, the news editor, literally start going along the river, bridge after bridge. Every time it crosses, a road crosses it, we look, we check the bridge, we knock them off, and we're looking for characteristics that match. Spend about 15 minutes, and this is obviously a very you know, quick view, but went through every single crossing, and we got to Hama, and there was nothing. So, went a little bit further and then uh, went into the satellite view, kind of persisted and went out the far side of Hama, the river keeps going, it's the Orontes River, and this bridge started looking interesting, so we started zooming in on it. And as we zoom in, you can see it's a two-lane, it's got a median across it. Zoom in further, you can start to see on the left-hand side of the bridge, the black and white curving. So we're thinking, like, this is probably the bridge, so we start looking for photos. If you look into Google Maps, right, there's panoramia photos that are uploaded and they're geolocated. And we click into the panoramic photos and lo and behold, there's our railing. Right, so this is the railing we saw before and there's black and white curves and that matches the railing that we saw earlier on. And again, another photo of the panoramic shows us the black and white curves in everyone's journey. That brings us to a point where um, we can look, go back to the three sources that we'd, that we'd spoken to in the past. The one who said that the bridge wasn't there, the one who said that it was there but it wasn't Hama, and the one who said that it wasn't Hama but they didn't think the water was running. The third source starts to look more credible. So we can discount the other three and we can start talking more to the third source and find out what they know. And all the information they bring to bear on it becomes much more useful and valuable to us and to our clients. In the end with that video, we couldn't validate it to a point where we could say 100% everything we know about this is certain. But we could say to the clients, 
we know this person is telling the truth, we're pretty sure this person isn't. And um, if you want to pursue it, here's your contact and here's, the, here's how you can go about it further. And that's how we do this kind of investigative journalism on, on video. And it, you can apply this to any, any, literally any kind of video you find. I found one in Cairo during the revolutions there where there was a, a guy who was uploading video to Facebook in real time at the same time as Al Jazeera were having their doors knocked down by the army and they were being pulled off their balcony. He was literally one building over, we could tell by the angle of the video, and he was the only person who had footage of the Khazar al-Nil battle, which was like protesters and police trucks moving back and forth and tear gas being thrown, and we were able to get that footage from him. What's interesting about all this is that we've done it for free. So the tools we've used, we've used Spokio, Wolfram Alpha, we've used Google Maps, we've contacted people to Twitter and Facebook. The only one of those that we've actually paid for is Spokio, and we paid for some Skype credit to call people. They're all available to everyone. And this is, the, revo this is the, the huge revolution in journalism now in news gathering, is that the tools are at your disposal to find all this stuff. And it's cheaper and quicker. It doesn't mean that you have any less of a burden in terms of what you have to investigate, because you have to apply old journalism techniques to all this new material, just in a slightly different way. But everyone can do it. And there's a colleague of mine called Gavin Sheridan, who some of you aren't whether you might know at Gavin's blog, formerly of The Examiner, He's a data journalist, and he just spends all his spare time doing FOI requests, freedom of information requests, for reams of boring data. I, I, like it drives the rest of us absolutely nuts, because the office just stacks up a paper that he then scans and he feeds into spreadsheets, and he just puts it online. And it seems ridiculous and pointless, but what happens is you get other nosy people coming in and going, thanks for the data, I've noticed this. Do you think this is an anomaly? This number is higher than this number, or this number is higher than... The other one should be, maybe you look into this, and he'll go and do his investigation, and that's where the stories come out. Gav and his, his colleague Mark Coughlin and a guy called Ken Fox from Sunday Tribune, they started just FOIing expenses. And I don't know if you remember John O'Donoghue was done for expenses about two and a half years ago. That was what Gav and, and, and Mark did. They basically dug all this information out. They worked in tandem with Ken Fox and the Tribune. It cost them 15 quid a go with the FOIs, but by collaborating online, they were able to bring to light this basically cascade of information that was able to, um, to bring about the resignation of the TV. So that's another way you can do it. And that was done with Google Spreadsheets, it was done with Excel, uh, Fusion Tables, etc. There's so many tools available to you now to do this kind of work that there's really no excuse. When it comes to the, the likes of Syria, the argument is often, this is killing journalism, it's killing foreign correspondents. To a certain extent, that's right. And so what we just did there with the maps on, on the video, I was able to do that in 20 minutes from an office cubicle in Dublin. Bamboozer is now the ultimate live streaming platform. It works on every crappy Nokia phone you can imagine. They are, uh, and they led Egypt. You could watch Tahrir Square unfold from a balcony. Um, and that spilled into Syria. Syria learned from Egypt. People from Egypt went to Syria to train the guys, and Libya went to, to um, <coughs> went to Syria to train those guys into how to live stream. So what you were seeing was bamboozer being used in places like Homs. Homs was devastated. It was this beautiful city. It got totaled. The, the army moved in, they trashed it, and they bombed it relentlessly, and they bombed where the guys were videoing from. But what you could do in ha uh, during the, the bombardment of Homs was have a live stream open, and there was literally a guy in his kitchen with a camera on his windowsill looking out over the city. And I would sit there at work, I'd be tapping away, I'd have the live stream open in a, in a background window, and you'd just hear bombing. And you'd hear like, the, the tinkle of cups and bird song, 
and then you'd hear the pounding of the shell as landing, and then you'd flick back to the live stream and you'd see columns of smoke. And it was like sitting with someone in their kitchen watching a war unfold outside their window. Syria then got more advanced in how they used all these social media, and it made it easier for us to verify because you'd find a video and you'd find a scrape of it from aggregator networks. So they would pull all the video together and they'd pull together all the original copies, put them in one place. You could then work back in time through Facebook to find the original copy. You'd find a YouTube channel that was connected to a Facebook channel that was connected to something else, and you could start pulling the threads and literally find your way back to a Skype address of a guy who had set the page up and you could talk to them in real time and build these relationships. So in newsrooms around Europe, in Storyville in particular, you start seeing a, a Skype account that's laden with contacts for people in uh, Rastan, in Homs, in Aleppo, and you know who your contacts are, you can go back to them on a daily basis. It gets quite traumatic because you'll get used to hearing from a contact, you might ping them a couple of times a day, someone you've never met, someone whose face you couldn't pick out of a crowd, but all of a sudden the feed goes dead, and the feed changes, the live stream is a little bit more erratic, and you realise that the person you were talking to three days ago has been bombed, they're dead, someone else has taken that up, which is fairly heavy going, uh, and it's, it's hit a lot of our team quite hard, you see people actually standing at their desk going, right, that person's gone. That happened in Libya as well, there was a guy called uh, Mo, Mo Nabus, Mohammed Nabus, who set up the live streaming in Libya, and he literally went out one day to film, and filmed his own death. And we've seen probably two dozen cameramen like that, just literally shot, they're out documenting what's happening in the neighbourhood. And the camera falls down, or the live stream just ends, and you commute into that connection, but you find out a couple of days later that they're gone. That's the kind of tapestry of, of social media. Another development that we've seen, particularly on the video side of things, is just the quality of stuff skyrocketing. So initially, when we started seeing video from all these uh, revolutions, it was very grainy, it was in 4-3 aspect ratio. You know, it wasn't very good quality, to be honest. Um, you can't really complain, you can't go, hey, come on, go out and shoot some better really, that piece of crap. But we know that there's groups called like a, the likes of Avaz and advocacy groups, which brings together the two strands, that have gone out now and have trained um, citizen journalists in Syria. They've gone out, they've armed them with better cameras, they've armed them with the knowledge of how to film stuff. And they've kind of counted some of the, there was propaganda techniques being used, which I'll talk to you about in a second, but they've just told them how to make better film. And this is, but it's the first time, I think, that you will ever have seen a war documented in real time like this. Those of you who are news junkies, stuff like uh, Iraq, the other wars, Afghanistan, we, what we see is very selected. Um, what you're seeing here is pretty unfiltered. All the way through Syria, you got uh, a lot of questionable videos. And we spoke to activists, and we spent about half an hour one day on the phone to a guy who was admittedly um, pro-Assad, um, but he was a moderate, and he said, listen, I, I have been in rooms when activists have been trained, and what they're being trained to do is they're being trained to film stuff in, in particular ways to give a particular view. Some of it you'll see when, when they were doing a lot of protest videos, it would always be shot from behind, you would never see faces, and that was done to protect identities. They would shoot one incident from multiple angles, so they would look like different incidents if you were to only show one video at a time. And they would, they would then release the video over a period of two or three weeks in different sequences, saying it was the same event, or saying, sorry, saying it was different events to make it seem like there was many multiples of the attacks that there were at that time. Um, and a lot of our clients would come to us and say, you know, is this one real? And we'd be able to say, no, that's actually this event from three weeks ago, uh, and we'd explain why. Um, 
other things that they would do. They would claim that there was videos, uh, they claimed a video showed an explosion in a particular town, when in fact it was a guy who'd gone out and set a batch of tyres alight a couple of streets over. And they would, they would mimic the, um, the screaming and everything, and it would literally it would be fake. You'd be able to tell by the colour of the smoke. So that changed how we view the video and how we put it on, how pushed it out to our clients. We've seen videos of the Syrian army faking injuries uh, with fake blood, makeup, the works. Uh, we've seen fake torture videos like the one I told you about in Mexico. It's been it's a complete revolution, and, and what you're seeing come back from Syria into <coughs> Israel and Gaza now in the last couple of days. Um, I'm sure some of you have heard about the, the real-time propaganda war that's going on there. Basically, the, the Israeli army is live-blogging um, what's going on in Gaza and gamifying it, which was the most disturbing thing that came out of in the last couple of days, where they're saying, if you like this page and you like the, Syrian, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces page enough, you'll get to a certain level. We'll give you the recruitment officer badge. In, in, I think what, the, what I'm trying to say is with all this, it's going to change how people perceive all of media because you have to question stuff more. Wherefore, in the past, where you were able to look at the news media and understand the stance of a particular organisation, like, say, Fox or CNN or Sky, and uh, you were able to look at the content that they're providing and go, well, it's 99%, it's, it's probably going to be true. Because all this stuff is being pulled now from social media, we have to do the work of figuring out if it's true. But the viewer has to do a bit more and be a bit more discerning, because any one of you can find this stuff. It's tricky to go and find stuff from Aleppo and stuff from particular streets and verify it, but it's all there. We have this growing repository on YouTube of video from, from these wars. It's becoming the world's most important repository of information and evidence. Um, four days ago, I think it was four days ago, no, sorry, my mistake, it was Friday a week ago, there was <coughs> videos of alleged executions of Syrian soldiers by free Syrian army guys. And the UN turned to the likes of us, Amnesty turned to the likes of us to, to back, some, back this up. Because we'd seen so many fakes, um, because we'd seen so many propaganda videos, we had to be able to tell them this was a genuine atrocity. And that's a big mind shift for organisations like that. They're looking to YouTube as potentially where the evidence will come for war, uh, war crimes trials. You might see YouTube being pulled into The Hague. It's an uncomfortable position for that company to be in because they want to be the platform. But that's where, uh, that's where the information is. What you do have, and this is what has never been tapped into, and it's a big mind shift for journalism as a whole, is you have all these people who are there. I mean, they're not trained journalists, but they're there and they have a camera and they have a video phone. And if they take footage, uh, it's from where they're standing, right? It's from their pr perspective. They're seeing what they want to see effectively because they put themselves in that position. But that perspective is no less real because of who they are and what they're seeing than what a journalist might see if they were there with a the camera. What's the difference between having a journalist there with a the camera and having another person there with a camera phone filming the same thing? Because this person is a student protester, does it make what the camera is capturing any different to what an objective BBC cameraman is, is standing and filming from the same position? I don't really think so. And it, it comes down to the consumer and the editor and the producer then to interpret what's coming back and interpret the footage. The footage is, it may be from a particular actual physical perspective, but the footage is objective. It's just what's happening captured on film. If it hasn't been doctored, if it hasn't gone through the same processes like uh, what we were talking about before, the kind of propaganda, etc., it can be used, it can be interpreted then, and if it can be backed up, then it should be used. And that's kind of the foundation of what Storyful is, is if you have all this valid material, why not use it? And if it's better than what you can get, 
it's, if it's better to what you have access to as a regular journalist, why not use it? Five years ago, you would have had to send a team of journalists to Syria, put themselves in danger, put other people in danger, establish relationships, establish rapport, would have come at great expense to the company. If you send a journalist now to Syria armed with that information, they are perhaps at a two-week jump where they might have started five years ago. That's phenomenal. That allows journalists to be better, that allows journalism to be more effective, and that allows journalists to tell the story in a way that they've never been able, been able to do before. If you take a YouTube video like that, amateur, video, uh, amateur videographers are killing journalism again, maybe. But maybe if you have a video from a source and you can verify that video, and you can embed that in your reporting, because all reporting now has to be digital, how many words can you save, how much time can you save by putting a video into your story and then doing the analysis beyond the video and doing the analysis around the video? I think you can save a huge amount. And I don't think that you're ever going to be able to take the journalist out of the process because you can go so far with tools, you can go so far with computers and with algorithms. All algorithms and computers are is basically sequences of binary yes, no, black and white rules. Truth is never black and white, it's never yes or no, it's always emotional, it's fluid, and it's a value. The journalist is the person who, who identifies that value and who presents it to the reader. So that's the job that we all have in this room and that anyone who's doing this has. But we have amazing tools at our disposal and go to do it.